If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we're continuing to look briefly at the first three chapters of Ephesians, eventually hoping to take a more extended look at the fourth chapter together. But uh, Ephesians 3, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, inside cover of your bulletin should have a copy of the text, and then you can also grab one of the pew Bibles, red ones are hymnals, black ones are pew Bibles, and I believe it is page 977 there. Ephesians 3, <clears throat> we'll read the whole chapter. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's ask his blessings now as we consider it together. Let's pray. God, you're good. What you do is good. Your word is good. So give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts that are ready to respond to it. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. I have dozens of passports, and I need to renew them constantly. That's not me talking. That's, that's not Tim talking. That's not some secret agent or James Bond. That's what Ken Sandy wrote in a blog post two years ago, Relational Wisdom 360. Some of you know Ken. 
It's not because he's a spy, a secret agent himself. He just likes people, he explains. He likes helping people. You see, passport is his term for relational credibility. Do you have the relational right or passport to enter someone else's life? Because if someone else is convinced that they can trust you, that you care about them, and that you can actually help them, then, in their minds, you have passport. You have the right to enter in to their life. See, I think Paul's doing something similar here. He's convincing the Ephesians that they can trust him, that Paul cares about them, that Paul, through God's Spirit, can help them. He can help them by explaining the gospel, by, by praying that they would be rooted and grounded in the gospel, or specifically, verse 17, rooted and grounded in love, the deep, deep love of Jesus that endured the cross, that despised the shame for us. This chapter that ends with a prayer should be a model for us. We should pray for the things that Paul declares and pray for the things that he prays for. See, he, we should pray for them, and to the extent that they're already true, we should praise God for them. In short, we should pray and praise God for gospel clarity, for gospel-empowered messengers, for gospel-soaked Christians, and God-glorifying worshipers. If we don't have it, we should pray for it. If we do have it, we should praise God for it. Now, a reminder, this is a long lead up to Ephesians 4. After today, I'll have preached one sermon each on Ephesians 1, 2, 3. See, to understand the church glorious, the theme of Ephesians, to understand how to walk worthy of our glorious calling, that's the theme of Ephesians 4, we need to understand the beauty, the glory of that calling the beauty and glory of the gospel, the mystery that was long hidden but is now revealed in Christ Jesus. So take a deep breath. It's time to drink in Ephesians 3 from the fire hose. Next week, Pastor Josh is gonna preach on 1 Samuel 16. And then after that, Lord willing, we'll start our leisurely stroll through Ephesians 4. But in the meantime, why can we trust Paul? Because he bears an answer to life's greatest mystery which is now revealed. That leads to our first point, the puzzle now solved. The puzzle now solved in verses one through six. You can call it a puzzle, call it a mystery. It's also a prayer interrupted seemingly. When Paul starts praying in verse 14, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Now notice in verse one, Paul starts kind of the same way. Then he stops. Verse one, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then there's that, that weird punctuation mark. I think that's a long dash. Could be wrong. My copy editor days are many years in the past. But he starts praying. And then the Holy Spirit leads him down a divine rabbit trail. Before he gets to that prayer in verse 14. A rabbit trail, but a good one, about the mystery of the gospel. Which is now revealed which involves all of God's people under one roof called the church. It's interesting that Paul, in particular, is the prisoner on behalf of the gospel. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But in chapter 2, what we read a few weeks ago, or is that just last week? My, my mind is going on a Sunday morning. I think it was last week. Paul spent a lot of time talking about the unity of Jews and Gentiles in the church because of the gospel. Because the same Jesus died for my sins and yours, uh, 
for the sins of all God's chosen people, not just Jews, but also Gentiles. And now in verses one through six, it's like Paul is saying, do you realize how awesome this is? This was a mystery for ages, but it's now revealed. And you see, on the one hand, there were hints of this mystery, right? Didn't come out of nowhere. In Abraham, all the way back, Genesis 12, in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jewish nation, right? Even though that term is a little anachronistic back in Genesis 12. And then Isaiah as well in the Old Testament talks about the Jews being, uh, talks about Israel being a light for the nations. Of course, they failed in that somewhat miserably. They were barely a light to themselves. They disobeyed. They became like all the other nations, right? But Jesus would succeed where all of them failed. Another son of Israel would succeed where they had failed. He would be a light. In him, all the nations would be blessed. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In this mystery, Paul says in verse 2, it was a stewardship, the mystery that's been revealed. It's a stewardship that was given to Paul, a message that was entrusted to him, a truth that was revealed, verse 3, to him, a mystery into which he has received insight, which all of God's people can now receive, verse 4. It was a mystery or insight, let's read verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. Think about this. The gospel was not fully revealed before Jesus came. Not fully. That means we have a great promise, we who live after the coming, the first coming of Christ. It also invites a question, how were people saved before Jesus? Quick answer. They were saved by Jesus who was to come. They were saved by grace through faith in the promises, the signs that, that foreshadowed this Redeemer who was to come. But don't miss the previous point. Verse 5 is saying, anyone who lives since the time of Christ has now received revelation, insight. You might even say illumination into the greatest mystery ever. You know the answer to the greatest puzzle, the greatest riddle, the greatest conundrum ever. How can I be made right with God? How can anyone be made right with God? How can I experience the peace, the joy, the beauty, the love that are found in God? It's by trusting in his son, our savior, Jesus, the Messiah. That's the answer for me, for you, for all of mankind, that he loved me and gave himself for sinners like me. As it says in verse six, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, not based on nationality, not based on ethnicity, not based on economic status or gender or anything. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says so. If we didn't drive the point home well enough already. Because we have received gospel clarity. The only hope for all of mankind. The message of salvation for sin. This is good news. Because of that, because we have gospel clarity, the mystery has been 
revealed. The puzzle has been solved. And if we haven't received this revelation, or if our neighbor hasn't, we should pray for it. Pray that God would open our eyes, open their eyes, whatever the case might be. And if we have received it, if we do know this good news, then we should praise God for it. Because we live on the right side of history, my friends. Oh, I know that is not what most people mean by that phrase, is it? It's a flawed phrase, by the way. It implies that life is just a continuum of unending progress. I think the Bible shows us that evil will ebb and flow as grace increases, as the kingdom of God advances. I think it shows us that in the end, Jesus wins and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But if we're in Christ Jesus, if we've heard the mystery of the gospel, which is now revealed, then this is the best time to be alive, my friends. This is the right side of history. We have the light of the gospel, the truth that explains our broken world, which God will redeem. We have the final chapter of the most important story. What a time to be alive. We have the puzzle now solved, the mystery now revealed. And after that, we see, secondly, the proclaimer now equipped. The proclaimer now equipped in verses 7 through 13. We move from the message to the messenger. <clears throat> Paul might have been the most unlikely person to be in prison, as it says in verse 1, for the gospel. Why is that? Well, because of his past. Paul did not always promote healthy Jew-Gentile relations. Paul, formerly known as Saul, he was much more pro-Jew than pro-Jesus. Philippians 3.6, he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. He was not a nice man. Saul thought Judaism and Christianity were incompatible. So he killed Christians. And it would take the unapproachable light of the glory of God to stop him in his tracks, Right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said to him. Of course, years later, God groomed Saul, later became known as Paul, to preach the gospel to those same Gentile, Gentiles that he had persecuted. I'm just sure he persecuted Christians of all stripes, but particularly Gentile Christians who weren't Jewish. I'm sure he didn't like. Is, is this a good idea? Was it? For Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? God thought so. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, was made, was given me, two passive verbs. Only God could do this, you see, not, not Paul. And then in verses 8 through 10, it says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul's getting excited. You see those three verses, just one long sentence, but, but it's the beginning. Verse eight that sticks out to me where he says he is the very least of all the saints. The great apostle to the Gentiles, he's aware of his weaknesses, his flaws, his rap sheet, isn't he? You know, this, this didn't come overnight. It grew over time, best we can tell. 
Paul probably wrote 1 Corinthians earlier than Ephesians, relatively early in his ministry, 1 Corinthians. There he calls himself the least of all the apostles. And he says why? Because he persecuted the church. There's, there's at least some humility there, right? Least of the apostles. Then again, it's the least of the apostles. Later, Ephesians 3, what we're reading here, he's, he's come down a bit. The very least of all the saints, of all the Christians there are, he's the least. Those who were made holy in Christ, saints. And then later still, end of his life, first, he's back in prison, 1 Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Jerry Bridges says this is quite a progression of self-awareness, isn't it? From a proud, self-righteous Pharisee to the foremost of sinners, he says. Only a person of genuine humility would describe himself in such terms. Paul was conscious of his weakness. But rather than being discouraged by it, notice verse 13 in that sense. He seems to use it. He uses his weakness as a messenger to highlight the beauty of the message of the God whom he serves. Right after he talks about being the very least of all the saints, he talks about these high and soaring things, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the light that was hidden for the ages, the manifold wisdom of God. He's not some celebrity preacher saying, hey, look at me. He's fading into the background because he has nothing to boast in. He highlights the glory of Christ displayed in and through the church, the unity amidst diversity, the strength out of weakness, the eternal purpose realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 11, he highlights our boldness, our access with confidence through our faith in Christ. And because of that, as he says, verse 13, you should not be discouraged that I'm suffering in prison. I deserve far worse than prison, he might have thought. You know, would he have been wrong to think that? The least of all the saints? Who once persecuted the saints, the foremost of sinners? Don't we all deserve worse than prison when you put it that way? But the gospel message that Christ died for sinners like you and me, it, it equipped Paul to be both more humble and more confident. You could say he hated his sin without hating himself. He was more humble about himself, but he was more confident in God's promises, more confident in his ability to proclaim the truth of God's word to all kinds of people. Because if the gospel could save a wretch like him, he could certainly save anybody if God willed it. And Paul's opinion of himself grew more humble as that happened, his view of God's grace grew bigger. The unsearchable riches again, the mystery hidden for ages, the manifold wisdom, all of these things. As Paul decreased, Christ increased. His confidence in the gospel increased. His love for the gospel increased. He began to praise God for the gospel-empowered messenger that he became. And we should do the same, thanking God for many gospel-empowered messengers who brought us to Christ. For, for some of us, it's one person. We know one person who witnessed to us, and if it wasn't for him, where would we be? For some of us, it's dozens of people, dozens of faithful Sunday school teachers and parents and others who prayed for us for years. We should give thanks for gospel-empowered messengers, whether there's been one or 100 in our lives.
should give thanks for that. We should also pray that we would love the gospel more today than we did yesterday. And as a matter of fact, that's what Paul prays for next. Number three, we see the prayer, the prayer for deeper knowledge in verses 14 through 19. This prayer kind of gains some rhetorical steam. It reaches a couple of crescendos along the way. Look with me first at verses 14 through 16. There he writes, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's a model prayer for us. It's an encouragement. See, Paul, he seems to know these grand things that he's describing. He seems to want them for the Ephesians, for, for anyone who reads this, who has, who's begun to know Christ. You see, he's not so much praying for knowledge instead of ignorance, right? He's praying that we would have a deeper, stronger knowledge of these things. Verse 17, read with me here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's hard to know when to stop reading once you start in verse 17 there. But what Paul wants, we should want for ourselves, for others. He wants God's people to be rooted and grounded in love, verse 17. And you know, because of the way Paul prays for this, Therefore, what, what, whatever it means to be rooted and grounded in love, it, it's probably not something that comes naturally to us as Christians, right? Not something that we just wake up, roll out of bed, and boom, we're doing it automatically before we get our cup of coffee, right? And this doesn't mean that we're all horrible people. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be. But if Christians still have indwelling sin on this side of heaven, and if sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, and if love is fulfilling of the law, Romans 12, 10, then we have to work to do this. We have to work to be rooted and grounded in love. We have to hate our sin and kill our sin because it's not loving to God. It's not loving to others. Again, we have to hate our sin without hating ourselves because God hates our sin, but he doesn't hate ourselves does he? We have to work to love the unlovable as God loved us when we were unlovable. We have to pray to God for more love to God. An old hymn says this, all my prayers shall be more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. See, as Christians, we can't simply stop at forgiveness and skip holiness. And we can't let our pursuit of holiness stop at the first failure either. You see, yes, you will still sin, even when you try to stop sinning. <laughs> but God still loves you. God still calls you to live a holy life. And yes, you will become more sensitive to your sin the older you get, the longer you're a Christian. This isn't much of a sales pitch, is it? This is just realism. You will realize things about yourself next year that you don't realize right now. Things that you might rather forget. You might realize that your sin runs deeper than you thought. 
And at first it will scare you. But eventually you'll pray like Paul. You'll pray Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. You see, when I, when I say that Paul is praying for us to have deeper knowledge, I don't primarily mean that you will one day realize that the first verb in verse 18 is an aorist subjunctive in Greek, though there are benefits to knowing things like that, by the way. I mean that you'll have a deeper knowledge of God's love for you, that you'll have a deeper saturation in his love that will make you more loving, that you will one day, by God's grace, more and more be rooted and grounded in love. In other words, when you're tempted to hate, you'll find a way to love. When you're tempted to grumble, you'll rejoice. When you're tempted to lash out, you'll make peace. When you're tempted to impulsiveness, you'll choose patience. Tempted to cruelty, you'll choose kindness. When you're tempted to be ugly, you'll choose goodness. When tempted to give up, you'll choose faithfulness. Instead of bulldozing others, you'll be gentle. Instead of following your passions, you'll choose self-control. And all that is only possible when you comprehend with all the saints, breadth, length, height, in depth of God's love, a love that surpasses knowledge, a love that will not let you go, a love that didn't let you go in your moments of grumbling and impatience and ingratitude and hatred and worse. Does Paul want you to have deeper knowledge? Yes, verse 19 says so, but it's really a deeper love, a deeper strength of character rooted and grounded in love. That's what we should want for ourselves, for others. And when we see it, this gospel-soaked, gospel-saturated, gospel-grounded Christian, we should praise God for that. And if we don't see it in ourselves, not quite as much as we want, we should pray for it. And if you think that prayer is just a bit too much for him to do, that's one step too far for God Keep listening for just a few moments more because after the prayer for deeper knowledge, we also see this. Fourthly and finally, the praise. Greater glory. See that in verses 20 and 21. Let's read those. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a finale. He still has three chapters to go in this letter. What an end of the chapter. You've heard these words before. We used it as a benediction last week. It's one of the ones I use frequently. You also may have noticed it's, it's actually more of a doxology than a benediction, right? A benediction is a blessing. A doxology is a statement of praise, of worship. This is more of a doxology. Why do I use it as a benediction? Because sometimes the blessing we need is to remember what our God is capable of. Because we already know what people are capable of, don't we? Maybe that last point made you realize the depth of your own sin, right? And maybe it made you realize the depth of other people's sin. 
Both of those can be discouraging for different reasons. With our own sin, we wonder, can God really change me? I've been struggling with this for years. Can he really change me? With other people's sin, we wonder if God can protect us, if he can change them before they hurt me too badly. Don't everyone say amen at once. We are Presbyterians after all. And this, this isn't some 21st century insight, by the way. You see, life has always been like this. The church's goal to make disciples of Christ, it's always been an uphill battle. Sometimes we forget that. We think this is the worst age that has ever been. Titus 1, 12 and 13. I'll read it in a second. Brief reminder. Titus was basically a church planter. This is in the first century when the church, of course, had no problems, as we sometimes think. I'm joking. The book of Titus is basically a letter Paul wrote to Titus about how to, quote, put what remained into order on the island of Crete, uh, appoint elders, get the church on its feet. We might be tempted to think that was an easy task. Well, how much do you know about Crete and Cretans? Chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, Paul writes, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, he says. How easy would it have been to plant a church there? Godly, orderly church out of that bunch. Doesn't sound easy, but as he says in the same letter, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, even Cretans, even you and me, even that coworker or friend or neighbor or family member that you've given up on. And I'm not saying God will save them. I'm saying he can. I'm saying he is able. He, literally, he has the power to do what we ask, what we pray for, even what we think or imagine. In fact, more than we imagine, Paul says, far more than we imagine, far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. Why? How? According to the power at work within us. The same power, remember Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that raised us from the dead, because we were dead, that's what Ephesians 2 taught us, in our sins and transgressions. So through this awesome power, it says God is going to be glorified in the church, this collection of dead men and women who've been brought to life by his grace, and in Christ Jesus, the worker of that grace, <clears throat> the accomplisher of our salvation, not just in the past, not just in the first century, but throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's hoping for a lot, isn't he? That the gospel made clear to him would also be clear to us. That the gospel would make us as it made him more humble and more confident. More confident in God's promises. That the gospel would be more firmly rooted. Grounded in our hearts. That we would be rooted and grounded in love. For most people, that'd be a big ask. That'd be a tall task. That'd be hard. But not for this God whose love surpasses knowledge, whose power exceeds even what we can dream. Started out talking about this idea of passport. Does Paul have it? Can we trust him? Does he care about us? Can, can he help us? 
due respect, let's forget about Paul and whether he has passport with his original audience or with us. How about your God? Behold your God, who's more loving, more powerful than you can imagine. Can you trust him? Does he care about you? Does he love you? Can he help us? If so, then worship him, give him the glory, revel in his love and his power. And even if you're not sure, I dare you pray and ask him to reveal himself to you that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be good to us. Show us your power. Show us your glory. Show us your love. Father, we pray that for those of us who've seen it a hundred times. If we've fallen into a rut of complacency, if we've grown cynical, oh God, would you snap us out of it? Would you show us the glory and beauty and power of Christ once again this morning? Father, if we've never seen it, if we're frankly uh, afraid because we've not been a Christian for so long. And now that, that some of this stuff makes sense, but it's weird. It's a little scary. We haven't figured it all out yet. Oh, Father, would you reveal yourself to people that are in that place right now? Would you show them your power? Would you show them your glory? Would you show them your love? And would you help them to know someone in their life that they can trust to help walk beside them. Maybe it's a pastor or elder. Maybe it's just a dear Christian brother or sister, co-worker that was the one Christian they knew that didn't seem judgmental. The one who was kind, who was loving, who was able to answer questions without defensiveness. Oh God, whoever it might be, would you put that person in their life? And most of all, would you put more of Christ into all of our lives? Would you help us to be more rooted and grounded in your love? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.